if you will turn to James chapter 1, verse 27, as we begin our six-week series today, and we're looking at God's heart for orphans and adoption and fostering and all of that. And everything that we see, keep this in mind, it's in the context of 1 Timothy, and we're studying 1 Timothy, and we're looking at house rules and how the church is to be ordered and set up and how it is to function. And everything, everything we saw in culminating in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, an emphasis in the gospel. Everything that we're commanded to do in the word of God, especially what we see here today and over the next few weeks with regards to orphans and adoption and fostering, all that, everything about that is a response to the gospel. It's seeing what God first has done in saving you and me. If you're saved here today, if you're here and a saved individual, meaning that, that you have been, you have repented of your sin, you have trusted in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as being the satisfactory payment for your sin, that you're trusting Jesus Christ and His righteousness for your own righteousness. The Bible says you're forgiven. That you were orphans. God has adopted you. He's become your father. You see real quickly, the more that you understand the gospel, the more that you understand why it would be absolutely fundamental that God call us to do the same. And in some ways, we'll see over the next few weeks that God has staked his reputation before a watching world on the church carrying out what we're going to see over the next few weeks and seeing to it that, that orphans and, wi and, and widows, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 5, are cared for. In some ways, he staked his reputation on that, on the church, his bride. We, we're, we are called to reflect God's heart through, through our heart and our ministry to others. What matters to God has to matter to us as people. And my prayer over the next few weeks is that God will merge our hearts with His heart. And not only in this text, not only in this topic, but with other topics. To move our hearts and minds more and more into submission with God's will for our lives and less and less with our own will for our own lives. That will reflect more and more of Him and less and less of us. Even, even in the ministries that we get involved in, and we'll see that later on. And I think for all of us, just to get, let the cat out of the bag to begin with, I think all of us would have to agree for starters that we all have room for growth in that area. In becoming more and more passionate about the things that God is passionate about rather than the things that we want to be passionate about. And even within the church, as we'll see, more and more passionate about the things that God has specifically called us to rather than the things that we want to be called to. And as we begin this journey, as I, as I prayed over just the beginnings, really one word came to mind, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's sourced in a text. It's sourced here in James 1.27. And here's the word over the next six weeks and, and really over the life of this church, as long as I'm the pastor and prayerfully whoever comes after me, Here's the word that I want us to think about, and it's intentionality. Intentionality. The, the word that I want to define our ministry here and effort towards orphans is intentional. 
I want us to show us today that this is not an optional ministry. It's not a ministry that's reserved for a select few. It's not a ministry that's reserved for the super spiritual. This isn't graduate level ministry. This isn't, this isn't a ministry even where we can say, you know what, I'll sit back and if something, if all the stars align and every, like, God, if you want me to care for an orphan, I want you to drop them off my front door. That's not how the Bible approaches it. We can't sit back and say, you know what, if God really wanted me to do this, you know what, a stork would deliver a child wrapped in a little cloth and he'd put them on my front door and there'd be a note attached that says, hey, this one's for the Bashams. Intentional. Pursuit. Look with me at James 1.27, and I want to show you why I'm not making that up. That's not my heart. That's God's heart. James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I would challenge us to memorize that verse. I would challenge us as a church to memorize that verse. If you want to jumpstart your verse memorization, let's, let's, as a church, let's memorize that one. But there's a word here that I want to focus on quickly. And, it, and, it's, and it's, it's a word that when we read it, we have all kinds of Americanized context of what that word means. And in the, in, the, in the Greek and even in the Old Testament and the Hebrew, it meant something very different than what you and I are going to interpret as. And it's the word visit. It's the word visit. When, when you and I, Americans, when we hear the word visit, well, you, what do we think about? Just in your own mind, think about that for a minute. What do you think about when you hear the word visit? I, I bet we think of Convenience. Hey, I'll, we visit somebody in America, you know what, when we've got nothing else to do. When it's convenient. When it, when it works with our schedule. I'm saying more or less. When it's, when it's on the route that I was already headed and I could just stop in and see you for a minute, hey, I'll pay you a visit. Now, oftentimes there's not a real cost associated with it. There's a specific time frame. There's a specific start and stop. One time here, maybe another there. There's, there's a lack of spontaneity. It has definite boundaries. It's clean. Hey, I got 30 minutes I'll give you. I'll come visit you. You know, and some people, let's be honest, some people, that's when we want to go visit. When we have a definite ceiling on that meeting. Like, I got to get out of here at a certain time. I'll go visit him now because I got to leave. I got to leave at 4 o'clock. That, that's the way you and I interpret visit. But the word visit here in James, it literally means to look after. If we were, if we were, if we were reading that word through, Greek, through eyes that understood the Greek, here's what it would mean. It would literally mean to take ownership and responsibility for something. It's an intentional effort to do something it's literally like you saying i got this one i got that in our language if if, if you came to me and you said hey i really have a need i really need you to handle something and i said you know what i got that take it off your agenda i'm gonna take responsibility for that that's literally what the word visit here means to to visit somebody you see it on your handout is to have a deep 
concern for serving them and to take responsibility for meeting their needs. It's nothing casual or convenient or without cost about it. It's intentionality. And, and, and I want to I show you that in, in some passages. This, this word appears all throughout the Bible. And, and, and I want to help us understand what the original reader or hearer of this letter would have understood when they heard the word. And I also want to show us how it's connected to the gospel. Again, sourced and rooted in the gospel. The fact that you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That our sins have been forgiven. That God, why? Because God himself, listen, visited us. In Genesis 50 Verse 24, the context there, Joseph, the big context, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. They, they really, in many ways, wanted him dead. Joseph is sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He's, he's lied about by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in prison. The, the candlestick maker and the cupcake baker and all the other people forget about him. God is working the whole time to lead him to this very moment. And, and, and Joseph, God takes Joseph through all of that and he puts him at the perfect spot at the perfect time to preserve Israel and to feed Israel and specifically even his own family. And listen to, listen to what it says. Joseph's brothers have come before him. You can imagine Joseph's brothers. They, they sold this man, their brother, into slavery, wanted, left him for dead, and now they're standing in front of him. And, and really, their, their future depends on Joseph. And listen to what he says. They say to him, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. I bet you, I bet you they're willing to say anything they can say to ease this thing but joseph said to them do not be afraid for i am in god's place how about that look at verse 20 and this is one of my favorite verses as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive if you were to if you were to go keep reading Keep reading, Joseph, Joseph stays in Egypt in his father's, house, they, they, his father's household, and, and eventually Joseph dies. But look, 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 look at verse 24, it says, and here's where you see this word. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised and on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Listen, the word there for take, God will surely take care of you, same word is visit. Same word is visit in James 1.27. Same idea. Ownership. Responsibility. Look, the rest of the Bible, you know what? You know what the rest of the Bible pictures? It pictures exactly what Joseph said in verse 24, that God indeed will take care of his people will take responsibility and ownership for his people. The, the only reason Israel exists is for that reason right there, because God alone, he has promised to take care and responsibility of his people. If you were to go to, to Psalm chapter 8, 
verses 3 and 4, real quickly. I, we don't have time to look at all these, but Psalm 8, 3 and 4 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. God, the psalmist is saying, When I consider that you, God, you've created everything. You've created everything. What is man that you take thought of him? There it is. And the son of man, here it is, that you care for him. Ownership, responsibility. If we were to go over to Psalm 106, verses 2, and four, two through 4, who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or show forth his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Listen. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation. Do you see the connection to the gospel? Do you see the connection here with God's character? You could, you could go all the way back to, to Deuteronomy verse 24, verses 19 through 20. When you reap your harvest in your field and forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all your works in your hands. When you beat the olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. God points, Moses in Deuteronomy takes everything back to their deliverance from Israel. I mean from Egypt. Salvation. He, he, he's commanding them in the law to, to build buffers and boundaries in their lives. Why? In order to provide for those who don't have enough. If that was written today, you know what he'd say? If you make $100,000, don't spend $100,000. Curb your spending to leave room for those who don't have enough. That's what he would say. When you get your paycheck... Build your lifestyle in such a way that you leave room for the orphan and the widow. That would be the 2017 version. I don't think any of us are beating fig trees and grape trees and expecting people to come in our yard and feed them that way. Intentionality. You see the intentionality that God wove even into the law? To intentionally provide... For the widow and the orphan. We, we can go to the New Testament and, and see the same thing. The, the point is that the Old and the New Testament, you see on your handout, paints a picture of God being the one who takes responsibility for coming to the aid of those in need, especially orphans, widows, and, and guess what? Sinners. Sinners. And, and with that, I want to offer some truths to encourage, to encourage and to fuel this in our own lives, built on the idea of our salvation being a, a picture and a model and fuel. And, and you'll see them there on your handout. And A is this, God's pursuit of sinners is our model for pursuing others. God's pursuit of sinners is our model. L listen to Deuteronomy 7, 8 and the choice of Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
You know, he's saying there was nothing in you, Israel, that warranted God choosing you, and yet he chose you. The reality is the very, the very opposite. They would have been the least likely to have been chosen. He says that there is the fewest of you. Romans 2, 4, do not think kindly of God's tolerance and God's patience, knowing that it leads you to repentance. Romans 5, 8, but while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, if you go on to verse 10 of chapter 5 of Romans, he calls us enemies. Hosea 2, same picture. Hosea, go take Gomer, a harlot, a prostitute. Go take her for your wife. You know why? The picture was this. The picture was to say to Israel, guess what? You're not Hosea, you're Gomer. We love to think of ourselves in that story as the Hosea, the one that's coming in to rescue, that we were worthy. Listen to me, we're Gomers. We were the ones that didn't get to, we didn't deserve to be chosen. You you go to, to Luke 15, same thing. All throughout, Matthew 25. Listen to Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come to your blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. There's the word again, visited. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When you did... And when, you, when did we see a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these, brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And here's why this is so important. And if you don't hear anything else, just... just Hear this. It's absolutely imperative that we as a church and our actions as a church reflect the gospel accurately. And that's why I just hear my heart. I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's why I get so, I just get uneasy when I hear people referring to the gospel and their salvation. Maybe it's in a song. Maybe it's in, in conversation. Maybe, maybe it's in all, a lot of the books that are, that are out there, but, but I hear people referring to the gospel and their salvation in ways that make men and make man and women and ladies whom God saved. To, they, 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 go and, they go to places that, that appear at least to make us worthy of having been saved. Of worthy of having been pursued or, or deserving. Or, or ways that make God almost appear like he was needy or incomplete. And listen, I, I'm just like you. My flesh wants to think that I'm worthy. That, that God was smart in choosing Chris Basham. My flesh wants to believe that. that like God needed man. And listen, nothing could be further from the truth. The, the only thing that you and I brought to salvation was sin. The only thing you and I offered God in this transaction was our sin. 
It wasn't, uh, it wasn't expository abilities. It wasn't serving abilities. It wasn't, it wasn't you know what, God, there's a, you have a need right here in your organization. I could really step in, and I can really, really fit that need. Listen, the only thing that you and I offered God was our sin. Enemies. Psalm 5, go to Psalm 5. It says God hates all who do iniquity. Hates. That's all we offered. And, and beyond that, we brought, beyond that, God did not choose us because he saw something in us that he wanted to get in on. It wasn't like he saw Chris was going to do something like, well, I'm going to choose him. No, that ain't the way it works either. Salvation is God taking sinners deserving death and making them trophies of grace, deserving his wrath, and instead of wrath, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he gives us grace and he gives us salvation. That's the gospel. The gospel is exchanging my sinfulness for Jesus Christ's righteousness. I was having this conversation yesterday on the way to the sporting clays with Bradley, and, and, and you know we were just talking through, because he, and unfortunately he's my son, and unfortunately he hears my comments of songs on the radio, and he listens and he says, Dad, that's not right. And I'm like, oh, great, now I've created a monster. He can't even listen to the radio either. But he says, but, but, we're, but, but we started having a conversation about righteousness. And how he and I are not perfect, and yet because of the gospel, God sees us as perfect. He has declared us to be perfect. Why? Because Jesus Christ was perfect on my behalf, and he's my substitute. And so I'm not perfect practically, and I'm trying to explain that to Bradley. You're not perfect, and yet God sees you through the gospel and the blood of Jesus is perfect. Therefore, he can rightly forgive you, and you can go to heaven. That's the gospel. That God would take a bunch of imperfect people, sinners, and rightly declare them not guilty. That took crucifying his son to do that. That's the gospel. And when we, when we elevate our worth, and when God did that for worthy people versus sinners, it, it horribly skews the gospel. If God died for worthy people, if God died for good people, if God died for smart people, if he, God died for people that he could use in his organization because he had a hole in it, that horribly skews the gospel. And that's why I'm so sensitive to that. I mean, when I hear songs that, that declare God to be my parachute, are you serious? Parachute? Parachute. That's ridiculous. I get that it rhymes. And it's catchy. I get it, but it's, that's, that, to me, it just so falls so short of a, of a holy, high, exalted view of God. He does not need us. And listen, if, if we stay away and do not turn to the gospel, listen to me, God is not impoverished. He's not needy. He doesn't need us in order to be happy. He's perfectly fine with the Trinity. He's perfectly fine with himself. But listen, he magnifies his mercy by giving us free access to himself through his son. That's the gospel. In spite of our sin. And, and if we see the gospel any other way, then the gospel becomes God dying for good people, worthy people, deserving people, like, like the gospel made sense for God to do what he did for us. Why? Because he gets Chris. Come on. 
or that he didn't truly hate sin. We weren't truly his enemies. We truly didn't deserve wrath. That's not the gospel. And to go there skews the gospel. But here's why, here's why it matters. Here's, here's why I'm saying that. Because if we have a distorted gospel, listen, everything about our life flows from the gospel. And if I have a distorted view of the gospel, all my actions begin to flow from a distorted view of the gospel. And here's why it matters. Here's why this matters. If God pursues worthy or deserving people, then guess who I pursue? I only pursue worthy or deserving people. If, if God's pursuit of you and I made sense, then, then guess what? I only pursue opportunities that make sense. If, if God's pursuit of you and I offered Him a great return on His investment, you know what I begin to pursue? I begin to pursue opportunities that have a good ROI, return on investment. That, that's the challenge. And, and listen, this won't make a bit of sense if that's the way you view the gospel. Until we put ourselves in the right place, everything, every, it will not make sense. Because even then, I, 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 even then I, I, you'll, you'll pursue only kids or children or people that make you look better. You'll pursue the left-handed Dominican boy because you know why? That joker might grow up to be a baseball stud. And you'll pursue the, the one over here that'll, that'll make, you'll pursue, the, but, but you won't pursue the, pro, the hard cases. Why? Because you, you don't see yourself as being a hard case. And everything flows out of the gospel. And anytime you elevate man for whom Christ died, you de-elevate God's graciousness and goodness. Did God die for a righteous man or did, God, or did Christ die for an unrighteous man? Huge difference. Huge difference. And listen to me, how we view that, all of our actions flow, because if I deserve salvation, guess what? I ain't sacrificing. I deserved it. Why should I sacrifice? I deserved it. But if I didn't deserve it, and I'm responding to that, that's a whole different story. And the challenge for every single one of us is this. We all have a tendency to fall into the camp where we begin to think we've been Christians so long that we deserved it. That's the danger. That's the danger. My, my default, my autopilot, if, if, I just, if I do not stay in this word and stay around people who are staying in this word, I will tend to become arrogant and haughty and think that somehow I deserve salvation. And all of my actions will flow out of that gospel. It, the whole picture of, of, of Matthew, this is, this is what he was saying in Matthew 5.43. He's, he's rebuking the Pharisees. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For it, Here's the point. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The Pharisees would have thought, look, we're the righteous of the righteous, of course. Hey, God's smart to come. No, no, uh, uh, no. That's why I said in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will, not exceed, you will not see the kingdom of God. Why? Because 
this is not a self-made righteousness. This is a God-made righteousness through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is perfection. Perfection. God loves differently than the world loves. He loves those who are unworthy and undeserving. That's why it makes total sense in Romans 12, verses 18 through 20, for God to command you and I to love our enemies and to do good those who persecute us. Why? Because that's exactly what He did to us. It all makes sense. But if we have a skewed vision or version of the gospel, it won't make sense. And you say, well, Chris, why, why you, why, why, what does that have to do with James 1.27? I think it has everything to do with James 1.27 because James 1.27 is commanding that you and I, Christians, exhibit sacrificial mercy rather than selfish mercy. Listen, I'm, I'm the world's greatest at selfish mercy. Hey, you give me $100 and say go give it out with joy, I'll give it out with joy. You say get $100 out of your own pocket and then you say go give it out. I say, whoa, hold on, that's a different story. But, but why? Here's the point. Sacrificial mercy best reflects the gospel. Sacrificial mercy. That's why he says in James 1.27 that it's pure. Why? Because it reflects the, excuse me, it reflects the gospel rightly. Sacrificial mercy to the undeserving. Why? Because that's exactly what God has done to you and I. And you see it on your handout. God intentionally, intentionally pursued sinners at great personal cost, those who are unworthy and undeserving and could not pay them back. And the right response to that is go and do likewise. Even, even in the vernacular of people saying, I found God or I discovered God. Listen, you did not find or discover God as much as God pursued you and you, re and you realize that. From our perspective, it may seem that way, but that's not gospel truth. The circumstances that led to you receiving Christ, guess who orchestrated those? God orchestrated those. We see that all throughout scriptures. Bringing man to an end of himself that he would completely, completely, completely trust in a God, in God of the Bible and not himself. It's intentional pursuit. And when we view the gospel wrongly, our actions flow wrongly. And, and we feel okay about those wrong actions. Why? Because the, the gospel's wrong. And it's sourced in how we see ourselves. But not only is it a picture, not only is the gospel a picture or a model, it's also the power for pursuing others. It's the power. If, if you were to go to, we've already seen where he, he causes people back to their exodus from, from Egypt. And he says, remember, remember that. But, but if you were to go to 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his own life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He goes on to say, how do you know you're a believer? You love one another. It's the mark. If we were to go to John 13, verse 34, that's exactly what he says. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Listen, the gospel is the fuel and the source for our love for others. 
And, and when John writes here that, that, that this is a new commandment, what he's saying is it's not an isolated commandment to love, but it's a commandment that's embedded in the gospel. Listen, he gives two commandments, and yet he categorizes it as one commandment. Why? Because it, it, the one flows out of the other. It's, a, it's, the, it's the gospel. When, when, when you and I call on Jesus and trust Him as the sin-bearing Lamb of God that He was, that that, that that provides everything we need, the response to that is that we love. The, the command to believe on Jesus and the command to love each other are inseparable in John's eyes. You see that? It's inseparable. So together, he literally says this, this, is, this one commandment, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, love others. One commandment. He goes on to say in verse 35, by this, what? By your belief, but by your love for all, by the people, by your love for the people, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love. That's the whole point. Love. Do you, do you, you say you treasure Jesus. You say that He's your Savior. He's your Lord. Do you love? It, uh, your love for others confirms that your profession uh, in Christ is real. And, and you see it on your handout. Our love for others flows from God's love for, for us. That's, that's what John writes about all over John. We could read numerous ones. We know love in this, what? That he first loved us. And the newness there rests in the fact that we have Jesus Christ as an example. To love, love was not new, but having the cross to look at as your ultimate example was new. Not, not only is the gospel our model and our power, but God's heart, third there, see, God's heart for orphans is on display throughout Scripture. There's no way to avoid in Scripture seeing God's heart is towards the orphan. Psalm 68, verse 5, just to read a few real quick. A father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. Psalm 10, 14. You have seen it and you have beheld the, the mischief and vexation to take upon your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Psalm 82, 3. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and to the destitute. You could write down Hosea 14, 3. You can go there. You can go to Deuteronomy 24. We already read that. Deuteronomy 26. Jeremiah 7. Just... I'm close to Jeremiah. I can get there quick. Jeremiah 7, verses 5 through 7. Let me read that and then we'll move on. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk with other gods or to your ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers. It, Jeremiah 49, 11, he says the same thing. His heart is towards the orphan. Jeremiah 49, verse 11. Leave the orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. The, the question before us, and you see it on the handout, is this. Will we ignore God's heart toward orphans 
or will we embrace God's heart toward orphans? That's the question. And, and I thought about this this week. An, an illustration. You, you ever asked your child to do, or children to do something specific, very specific, and they go off and do a bunch of other things that might be good things, might have needed to be done, but they do not do the one thing that you ask them to do? Is that obedience or is that disobedience? It's disobedience. Again, they, they, they'll go off and do, they'll do great things. They'll do things that are helpful, they'll do things, but they will not do the one thing that you ask them to do. The question is, how do you handle that as a parent? And, and I think that, that, I wonder, as I was thinking about that this week, I wonder if that's not how we operate as a church. Or even individually. God has said, here is my heart. This is what I want you to all about. I want you to be all about this. We go over here, we do all these other things. And we ignore the thing that he called us to do. Maybe, maybe because these things we like more. Maybe they're easier. Maybe because those things over here are less costly. Maybe because they bring us more glory and attention. Maybe because they're going to make people like us more than this over here. Maybe bring us more attention. And we think that we're going to stand before God and He's going to say, Hey, did you do what I asked you to do? No, but I got all this. Can I trade this for that? No, because, see, I stake my reputation, if you will, on the church doing this. I've told you to do this. But we got all this stuff over here. Yeah, 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 no, no. Your glory, God's glory. Decide for yourself what is right and wrong. Trust God, Genesis 3, to, discuss, to tell you what is right and wrong. That theme is pervasive throughout the whole Bible. Judges, all throughout Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We live in a culture today, guess what? Everyone does right in their own eyes. And we think as a church, that, that mentality filters in. We can do what's right. Around. No, no, no. God says, here's what I want you as a church to be about. Yeah, but we did all this. No, no, this is what I want you to be about. He's given us a charge. He's given us a focus. He's given us marching orders. And here's the challenge. We saw it last week in 2 Timothy. Be a good soldier and don't get distracted with other things. That's the challenge. And, and beyond that, you'll see D, God, if God offers warnings to His people if they do not care for orphans and widows. And, and the, the challenge is even in... We, we'll, you, can, you can write these down. Look at them later for the sake of time. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 10, 18. Isaiah 10, 1 and 2. Jeremiah 22, 3. Malachi 3, 5. I'm going to read to you Matthew 25. Finish that, that passage that we read. It's interesting here in Matthew 25. This is talking about the judgment, verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. There's the word again. Then they vi then themselves will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, or didn't care for you? Then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If, if you were to go back to, you're talking about visit and making it a priority, a, a very con convicting proverb and in the mornings. Bradley and I take Bradley to school and, and we get there a few minutes before the, the gates open. And so whatever the date is, we read through, we read through that proverb. And so we were reading through and in Proverbs 3, listen to what it says. Proverbs 3, verse 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Strong passage. You know, you see it on your handout. We can't people who make it can't, we cannot be a people who make excuses as to why we do not obey, but rather we must be a people who find ways to obey. We exist to reflect and to glorify our Father and His character and to do His bidding. There will be consequences for not doing that. And if anything else, if not anything else, miss joy. Miss joy. And, and our love for others, you see it in your handout, is evidence of our being saved. We've seen that. And a lack of love for others may be evidence that we're not saved. That maybe Satan has deceived us. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that he prowls around as an angel of light looking to deceive. And if not anything else, here, believer, you miss out on the joy. The joy, and that's E. That's E, and I'll close. God offers each of us an invitation to join him in his pursuit of orphans because our joy is. Not only will God get the glory, but our joy will be made full. And, and the reality is, obedience to God's word is not always easy, and it's not always convenient. Listen, it's much easier to sleep in on Sunday than it is to get the family ready for church. It's a whole lot easier to not spend time daily with the Lord than it is to set aside time to meet with Him. It's oftentimes easier to lie than it is to tell the truth. It's easier to spend your money as you want rather than have a budget and, as we saw, set aside so that you'll have some for others. Just like it's easier to give in to temptation than it is to withstand temptation. It's easier to go along with the crowd than it is to stand alone on your convictions. And yet, God has invited us through our obedience, into an eternal joy, but even a joy here. And that's what he says in, in John 15. He's talking about the vine and the branches, and verses 1 through 11 are, are talking about that, about obedience. And here's what he says. 
I'm starting verse 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you, and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, listen, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Your, your kids ever like mine, and maybe they don't quite connect what you ask of them or command of them. Maybe they don't quite connect the fact that you really do love them, and that's why you're asking them to do that. They just don't get it. They, they're just young. They don't see that. Like, you're creating discipline in them. You're creating, you're bringing joy to them. When you say, don't do this, they just think, well, you're killing my joy here. No, no, I'm actually saving your joy. And what, what, what the Word of God is doing and what God is doing is there's a joy. There is joy attached to our obedience. And listen to me, there is devastation attached to sin. Sin will always bring about devastation. Satan won't tell you that on the front end. But, but it brings about devastation. And you see it on your hand now. We cannot disconnect our joy from our obedience to God's commands. The reality is, is that might be why some of us are so joyless is because we're just not very obedient. And, and the invitation here, again, the reason why I say all this and, and look at the word visit, the invitation is more than to simply feel bad for others. It's not just feeling bad. That's not what visit means. We are called as believers to simply to more than simply feeling bad. We are called to act, to love, to pray, to serve, to advocate, to defend, to sponsor, to adopt, to foster. All those things, somewhere in our lives, we're called to get involved in some way. I mean, I thought about that story. Okay, so think about just the story we saw about Katie. This, okay, so the, the child did not get aborted. Who's going to raise that child? We, we can't beat the drum over here and then not follow through over here. That's the problem. Somebody's got to raise the child. And, and it won't look like the same for all of us. It will not. But listen, at some point, I, I thought about it even this, this week as I, you know, I heard a story of a lady in New York who just fostered her hundredth child. You know, and I thought, you know what, this, this, is where, this is where, for me, and I'll just be honest with you, it, it boils down to faith. At, at the end of your life, have you wasted, if you spend your life on yourself, listen, you've lived by faith. You spend your life on the Word of God, guess what, you've lived by faith. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if, we, if we spend our lives on God's glory and not our own, and we spend our lives on others, why do we do that? Because we have a confident conviction, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that God is rewarder of those who seek Him. That His promise is true. And the reason why we won't is because we don't really believe that. Let's be honest. It's going to boil down to faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's in my own life. Hear me, it's in my own life. John 10.10 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do we believe that? 
And we have the opportunity as a church to pursue this together. Different ways, different forms, but, but all to the glory of God. The, the joy of being a part of something together and that is bigger than ourselves through the grace that we first received in the gospel. There's joy there. And the challenge for us corporately and individually is what I would hope individually and corporately is may we be a church, you see it in your handout, and a people who more and more every day seek to love others sacrificially as we have been loved. Every day. That's going to require intentionality. It's going to require sacrifice. And it's going to require purpose. But I believe that God's glory, His kingdom, and the gospel are worth it. And, and I believe they demand it. 